How's everybody doing? There we go. Um, if you weren't here last week, then you know that I have um, acquired the services of an expert on Matthew to read our scriptures because Matthew is Matthew. So you, you, you can at least relate to him in the name, can't you? Yeah. Do you think he was named after you? Oh, you think you were named after him. Okay, okay. Well, I like that. Hey, that's great. Uh, we have a lot of fun. I appreciate Matthew reading this. And um, I'm going to work the slide. And Matthew, are you ready to read our scripture today? Yes, sir. Okay. Then here it is from Matthew 21. Turn it over to you. Just speak right into the microphone. Here you go. As Jesus and the disciples approached the Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you are doing, just say, the Lord needs them. And he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, Tell the people of Jerusalem, Look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt. And he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this? They asked. And the crowds replied, It's Jesus, the prophet from Naz Nazareth in Galilee. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew. Now, yeah. Uh, last week, I kind of stunned Matthew with a question, but he handled it really well. So we're a little prepped this week, right? I was going to ask you the question, why do you think he's riding a donkey? Because it fulfilled the prophecy that said, Tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humbled riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Yeah, that's right. And that was your answer to me over here, right? Yeah, I didn't coach you on that, did I? Credit. He gets credit. That's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you, Matthew. I appreciate you reading today, and we'll see you next week, okay? Thank you so much for all your help. It is a, uh, yeah, I was just sitting there with Matthew, and we're getting ready to come up here, and I said, why do you think he was riding on a donkey? He gave me that very answer, and I thought, stick with what you, see, that's, that's exegesis 101, folks. Go with what the scripture says. He's riding on a donkey because it fulfills the prophecy. So why don't we start there and ask that question for ourselves? Because this sermon today is going to open up a time of reflection before the Lord's Supper. I want you to think of this not just as the sermon, and then we go to the Lord's Supper, but I want you to think of them as moving together, the Word and the table. Because how we reflect on this reading that was just shared with us 
it's going to ask us to consider what do we think of Jesus? What do we think of the one who comes into Jerusalem riding on the colt of a donkey? What do we think of him? And then knowing what we think of him and knowing how we regard him, that's going to shape the way that we join him and share with one another around the Lord's Supper table. The reason why that prophecy is given, and we're going to get back to that in just a moment, is because Jesus is not an invader from the outside. It's inappropriate for him to ride into town on a war horse. It's inappropriate for him to march in like an invading conqueror and to say, Jerusalem is mine. Jerusalem had been invaded in its history over 20, 30, easily 40 times. It was always changing hands. Jerusalem is the kind of city that where it sits, it's constantly being handed off to a new government. It has been invaded by the Egyptians. It's been invaded and conquered by the the Romans, by the Greeks, by the Hasmoneans, by the Herodians by every other group you can think of in that region. And so constantly, there's a new army marching in every day, it seems like, or every decade, to say, we are now the rulers of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, you can imagine it, in their culture, in their history, they're used to being conquered. They're used to being taken over. No wonder they want an Israelite king But no wonder they also want peace. And when Jesus comes in riding on the colt of a donkey, he is coming as a servant, not as an invader. And he's not a tyrant king, but he's a king that brings peace. The triumphal entry into Jerusalem with the war horse and whatever else is always the invading army's way of saying, we own you now, and we want you to see all of our weapons. These things are not ancient. They still, they still exist. You know, during the height of the Cold War, and now it seems like we have more of it, there's always these military parades in front of Red Square, in front of the, the capital of different cities. And they always march out missiles. Have you noticed that? In the 20th century, you got all these armies and the missiles are showing up. Now, the missiles don't know that they're there, do they? No. They don't have to show up and get ready. They get hauled through there. So what is the point of hauling the missiles along? It's to flex the muscle of the invading army, of the conquering army, of the army in question, and to say, that's ours. We will use it on you if you're out of line. Even American forces know how to do some saber rattling. We conduct tests. We conduct training exercises. That's military. That's how it works in this world. But in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says the authority is not given by any power on earth. It's given by God. I come to you as a servant. I come to you as a savior. He brings peace. There's no need to ride in on a war horse. There's no need even for the royal treatment. He doesn't have to come in with all the pageantry all the pageantry of royalty and be honored and lifted up and held high on 
some kind of uh, you know, carrier or anything like that. There's, there's, all he's attended to are the people who throw their garments on the donkey and they find what they have, the palm branches, and lay it down in the path. They're finding whatever simple way they have to honor him, and they'll do it. But we, we, we respect that too. Again, we've seen this, the likes of this before. Some of you, if you um, grew up in, in this area, especially in northwest Arkansas, back in the days when Walmart was becoming a huge corporation, you heard the legends of Sam Walton's truck. And, and, it, and when you look back at it, you think, well, yeah, but why did that impress us so much? And what I'm talking about is people would say, he's the eighth richest man in America. It was always eighth. It was always eighth. I don't know why. It was always like eighth richest man in America or something like that. And he drives an old beat-up truck. Let me tell you, I used to drive an old beat-up truck, and it didn't make me any richer than I am right now. I got a lot of pity, but I didn't get any richer. I had the formula in reverse again. But the thing is, here he had means and he had wealth, but he didn't go in for the pageantry. And, and this is Jesus. He has the power. He has the authority. But he comes in with the humility that you would expect of God's true Messiah. Now really, that, not that everyone would expect, but the humility that he knows is appropriate because, again, like Matthew Rye just said to us, if you read the prophecy, the scripture, you'll see that. Jesus is not there to suppress Jerusalem, but he's there to save. Let's take a closer look at the Zechariah 9 text. 500 years before Jesus, more or less. Zechariah writes this prophecy, and it sets up the expectations of the Messiah. Now, Zechariah is an interesting prophecy because whereas a lot of your earlier prophecies like Isaiah and, and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, it calls upon Israel and Judah to repent because they are going to be conquered and they need to repent. They need to be prepared for the invasion of the Babylonians. That's yet another group that invaded Jerusalem. But Zechariah is on the other side of that, and it says the time of your punishment, the time of your exile is over, and God is restoring your fortunes. God is helping you to grow. He's building you up. So there are promises in Zechariah that are hopeful. I will guard my temple, this is from Zechariah 9, and protect it from invading armies. I am watching closely to ensure that no more foreign oppressors overrun my people's land. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious. Yet, he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea, and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Yeah. Now when you look at that in its, in its larger context, some of that becomes quite clear in the rest of Matthew's Gospel. Because after this entry into Jerusalem, where is it that Jesus goes? He goes to the temple. He goes to the temple to protect it. To protect it from the insiders who have turned it 
into a den of thieves. I wasn't finished with the text, my bad. Because of the covenant I made with you sealed with blood, I will free your prisoners from, the, from death in a waterless dungeon. Again, you can see how this, you know, 500 years before Jesus, you can see how this connects to him. The covenant sealed with blood. And I tell you that when we come around the Lord's Supper table and we drink of the cup that Jesus says, this is my blood of a new covenant. Do we understand that those words have roots centuries before Jesus? The promise of a covenant sealed with the blood of the Son of God Himself. So when the people are crying, Hosanna, what is it that they're saying? Well, this fulfills so many of the expectations because even though they cannot access their Scripture directly, not many of them, they can access their Scripture through memory and through what is visual. So when Jesus sends His disciples to go get a donkey and a donkey's colt and He rides in on that, it's a way of putting up a a symbol without words, something that every one of the people will understand. That Israel's Messiah comes in not on a war horse, but Israel's Messiah comes to them as a humble servant, riding an everyday means of transportation. A donkey's colt. Nothing special about it. It's ordinary. But it becomes special because it is ordinary. And because it is the Messiah. And yet, there's a bit of drama that happens because of this. I want to continue to read from Matthew 21, and I want you to see this. When Jesus returned to the temple and began teaching, the leading priests and the elders came up to him. They demanded, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right I will tell you what authority I do these things if you answer one question, Jesus replied. Did John's authority to baptize come from heaven or was it merely human? They talked it over amongst themselves. If we say it was from heaven, he will ask us why we didn't believe John. But if we say it was merely human, we'll be mobbed because the people believed John was a prophet. So they finally replied, we don't know, which is a lie. And Jesus responded, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. It's not because Jesus is holding back. It's because it wouldn't make any difference what he said to them. They're going to deal with it the same way they deal with John's message. The people, meanwhile, what has offended them so much is that the people are crying out, praise to the Son of David. The people are crying out, Hosanna. Save us. Hosanna is much more than a glorified hooray. Hosanna means even more than an alternate form of hallelujah. They're not just interchangeable like hallelujah, hosanna. And sometimes hosanna becomes a very um, churchy word that we, we really don't understand. Hosanna is a cry for help. It means please save us. Please save us now. It's a way of expressing that in praise. It comes from the Psalms. And, and it, it, it starts out in Hebrew and then it 
gets turned into a Greek phrase. And so when the people are shouting Hosanna, they're saying, save us, Messiah. Save us, Messiah. Jesus, you're the one. We want you to save us. Your very name means salvation. And their cry for that is so simple that they are embodying what Psalm 8 says, which Jesus points out to them when they say, hey, you need to stop them from saying all of this. And, and let's read that text, in fact. Let's read that text in 21. Go back a few verses. Notice the interaction here. In verse 12, Jesus entered the temple, began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. Which, by the way, if you think that Jesus comes in and just starts smacking people around and beating them over the head, that's not the case. He's just rather rough with the furniture moving, okay? So he comes in and he says to them, The Scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. And he's taking away the things that have become an obstacle to the people coming to God's house. The blind and the lame then came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And by the way, many of them would be considered unclean to be there. And yet Jesus invites them in. The leading priests and the teachers of the religious law saw these wonderful miracles. And they heard even the children in the temple shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. But they were indignant. They asked Jesus, Do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus replied, haven't you ever read the Scriptures? For they say, you have taught children and infants to give you praise. That's Psalm 8-2. Indignant is not a word that we use a lot, but just the way it sounds tells you that, boy, when somebody's indignant, you want to get as far away from them as you can. They are offended. They have no reason to be. They've seen wonderful things, but they're offended. Because all of this is disrupting the system that they have worked so hard to maintain. How dare this Jesus come in and do this? That's why they ask Him later, by whose authority did you do this? He challenges their authority so they challenge His. The people, meanwhile, when you contrast this, they believe that John's a prophet sent by God. They believed in His message and they changed their ways. They believe that Jesus is their Savior and that's why they can say Hosanna. The religious leaders, on the other hand, they would not change. They heard John's message. They examined John's message. They probably took it apart word by word, parsed it, and then decided that it wasn't the kind of message that anybody should be hearing or that they needed to deal with. Jesus says, you heard his message, and he taught people the right way to live. Later on, Jesus will say, tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom before you because when they heard the message of repentance, they changed. And you did nothing with it other than get indignant and get offended. Jesus is showing us what it means to bear fruit. You know, there's another interesting little scene that happens in this. Where Jesus is coming back into Jerusalem. And he sees a fig tree that looks mature enough to bear fruit thinking, hey, this is a good thing. There might be fruit here. He looks, and there's no fruit. The leaves are there, no fruit. 
And Jesus does something that a lot of people get really upset about. It's like, why did he get mad at that fig tree? You know, because he says, may you bear no fruit anymore. Well, first of all, it's a tree. Uh, but I understand some of you love trees, and that's okay. And he, he says, you know, may you bear fruit no more. That doesn't necessarily mean he's, 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 bad, he's mad at it. But you're saying, but he cursed it, and cursing sounds bad. Well, it does, but just keep in mind, cursing, and I'm not trying to get Jesus off the hook, cursing is just the opposite of blessing. And here's the thing. Jesus has no blessing for this fig tree that looks like it ought to be giving out figs, but it's not. Now, some of you who are much better gardeners than I know what that's like. Because when it's September... And your tomato plant that has grown really big all summer still doesn't have any tomatoes at it? You may not curse the tomato plant, but you're ready to curse. Because that tomato plant has lied to you. And it's not going to be around for very long. Now, Jesus is just simply saying, may you bear fruit no more. And it withers. Now, it opens up a lesson about prayer. But let's understand, too, the fig tree is a symbol of a nation of people who had all of this operation. They had all of this action going on in the temple. They had a lot of movement. But they didn't have any progress. They didn't have any product. You know, here we are years into this whole new reality of post-pandemic living. And I think one of the wake-up calls that we've had is... You know, it's, it's really easy for us to get into the habit of playing church. Of pretending church. And when we had it taken away from us and we weren't able to get together, then it made us realize, hmm, maybe this is about more than just showing up and being seen. Maybe this is about much more than that. Because we can be seen and, and we can put on an appearance, but if there's a lot of movement but no action or a lot of action and no progress or product, then what are we really doing? We might just find ourselves living by the Word, may we bear fruit no more, because we're not doing anyone, including ourselves, any good. The fig tree represented Israel, and God help us, we don't want it to represent us. Instead, what we want to be is we want to be like the ones who are unafraid to say, Hosanna, God save us! And he will. The children, the crowds who are saying praise to the Son of God, praise to the the Son of David, many of them were lost, but now they're yielding the spiritual fruit of salvation. They are the ones who will go on to preach the gospel to the nations. They are the ones who will follow Jesus and change not only their way of living, but change the way of living for many. So I want you to imagine that day in Jerusalem. Only days before he's crucified. Only days before the event that we kind of wrap up and encapsulate in a single word called Easter. And we have to be careful about that, not because it's not biblical, but because we can say Easter, smack a label on it and move on. We need to stop and we need to understand what all of it's all about and appreciate it. Just like we want to do with the Lord's Supper table today. We want to ask ourselves for a moment, what does all this mean? What's it all about? Otherwise, we can have a lot of action and a lot of movement, but no progress, no product. 
I want you to imagine that it's that day before Jesus gets here, and this is a time of reflection that I want you to share with one another. If you just need to quietly reflect on it, that's fine too. But here's Jesus. He's entering into Jerusalem. He's fulfilling the prophecy, which means he's got the symbol going. He's on the donkey's colt. He's riding in Jerusalem as a king of peace. Not as an evader and a conqueror, but as a servant and a rescuer. Where are you? Are you with those who can shout Hosanna? Or are you with those who say, I'm not sure about all this? Ask yourself this, why is it that the religious leaders won't shout Hosanna? They can, but why won't they? Why do they question and quench the celebration? It's not just because they're the bad guys. They really think they're the good guys, but why? And ask yourself this, why is it that the little children in the crowds, why can they shout Hosanna and why do they sing His praises? And then we need to reflect, are we willing and able to celebrate what does our Hosanna mean? I'd like to ask you to take two minutes now. You can talk to those nearby. It might be that there's some little children near you that want to talk about this and ask about this. We encourage your questions, children. We want to know what what you think. And we want you to listen to what we have learned from God's Word. Think about this, and I will be back to lead us in the prayers around the Lord's Supper. By the way, if you didn't get a chance to grab a communion service, they're on these tables right over here. There's a few of them in addition to being in the lobby. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time of reflection. Father, we're going to talk with one another, and in doing so, we want to talk to one another in your presence. We know that when you call us to worship, you don't call us to be here alone. You call us to assemble with our brothers and sisters. You call us to assemble with our family. We know that those who have often been kept at arm's length from you are welcome to be in your presence, just as the blind and the lame came to Jesus that day in the temple. Father, as we reflect on these things, let us have a better sense of who you are and what it means for us to say, Hosanna. Teach us, O Lord, with your presence and with your spirit. Now in this moment, we pray. Amen. Let's reflect. Turn to one another and...